0: And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the Biden administration preparing to send Haitian migrants to Guantanamo Bay. Also going to be having an on the ground update uh, uh, concerning this week's elections in Israel and also going to be discussing recent developments in Peru. And at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind.
1: Well, a new CNN poll conducted by SSRS indicates that Democratic enthusiasm about voting is significantly lower than it was in 2018 when the Democratic Party took control of the House. The poll shows that overall, 27 percent of registered voters say that they are extremely enthusiastic about voting this year. And that's down from 37 percent just ahead of the 2018 midterm elections. And the decline in enthusiasm comes almost entirely among Democrats. Four years ago, 44 percent of the Democratic registered voters said they were extremely enthusiastic about voting. Now, just 24 percent say the same. Among Republicans, the number has dipped only narrowly from 43 percent to 38 percent. Of course, this spells doom for the Democrats who could very easily lose the narrow majority they have in Congress next week. Races across the country are tight, many neck and neck with little daylight in polling between the Democrat and Republican candidates. Democrats are so desperate that they've dragged former president and shamer in chief Barack Obama out on the campaign trail to try to generate some enthusiasm. Sticking to his tired shtick of shaming lazy voters, he told attendees at a rally in Georgia to get off their couch and go vote. In a dig at millennials, he told them to give TikTok a rest and go vote. I guess it's better that he didn't bring up Pookie and Ray Ray like he did last time, because shaming people is a better campaign strategy than actually having policies that people want to vote for, you know. But shaming people into voting for Democrats to save America from Republicans is pretty much all the Democrats have, because after two years of a Biden presidency, what do we have? A recession fueled by U.S.-NATO-provoked war in Ukraine, fuel and food prices creeping higher and higher, expanding poverty, increasing attacks on the rights of gay and transgender people, the student loan debt cancellation that really wasn't, the loss of women's bodily autonomy, severely scaling back of educational integrity and teaching the true history of this country in regard to racism, under a Democratic president, people are broke, struggling, and fighting for their human rights while at the same time living under the existential threat of climate change that's gone unaddressed and the Democrats pushing for nuclear war with Russia. Hell no, people aren't excited about voting for the Democrats. And too often, those Democrats will do nothing more than threaten people to vote because our ancestors died trying to. That's for us. And while they are correct on the history, it's an empty argument. Because it's absolutely true that trying to vote meant death for black people in this country. Take the Okoe massacre that was carried out in Okoe, Florida on November 2nd, 1920. The day before the election, the Klan paraded through the streets of the two black communities in Okoe late into the night, warning the residents that, quote, not a single Negro will be permitted to vote, end quote, and if any of them dared to, there would be dire consequences. On election day, some black folks did attempt to vote in Orange County. However, none were permitted to enter their respective polling places. While enforcers camped out around the centers and poll workers were given instructions to deflect their attempts, black voters were either threatened with violence or poll workers told them that their names were mysteriously not on the voter rolls. Most returned home. But one man, Mose Norman, rode to Orlando to seek the counsel of Judge Cheney, who told him to write down the names of any African-Americans who were not permitted to vote and also take the names of the poll workers who had denied their constitutional right to prepare for a lawsuit against the county. Mose returned to Okoe and with a few other black people attempted to gather the information and tried to vote again. They were once again turned away, but not before Mose Norman proclaimed, we will vote by God. Angered by the temerity of the black folks exercising their rights that the 15th Amendment to the Constitution was supposed to afford them, the Klan led a mob of white citizens on a rampage against Mose Norman, his family, and ultimately murdered an estimated 50 blacks in Okoe. Survivors who fled never returned under threats of death. Those who owned land were forced to forfeit it or sell it to whites for practically nothing or face certain death. The Ocoee massacre and resulting ethnic cleansing of black people erased the black population of the town until 1978. So, yes, our ancestors absolutely fought and died to exercise our alleged constitutional right to vote. And it needs to be said that the current Republican efforts at arming poll and ballot box watchers to stop some type of fraud and voter registration purges are absolutely not new. White supremacists have done all of this before. But here's an unpopular question. What's the use of exercising a right to vote when the choices we're giving to vote for will benefit us nothing, regardless of how our vote is cast? We're a far cry from having the kind of enthusiasm for voting that was expressed on November 2, 1920, same day when Eugene V. Debs ran for president on the Socialist Party ticket while in prison. Debs was serving a 10 year sentence under the Espionage Act of 1917 for his speech in Canton, Ohio, protesting World War One, which was raging in Europe. Debs, renowned union organizer and socialist, said in his speech, quote, and here let me emphasize the fact, and it cannot be repeated too often, that the working class who fight all the battles, the working class who make the supreme sacrifices, the working class who freely shed their blood and furnish the corpses, have never yet had a choice in either declaring war or making peace. It is the ruling class that invariably does both. They alone declare war and they alone make peace. Yours, not to reason why, yours but to do and die. That is their motto, and we object on the part of the awakening workers of this nation. If war is right let it be declared by the people you who have your lives to lose you certainly above all others have the right to decide the momentous issue of war and peace while in prison eugene Debs received 1 million votes in the u.s presidential election which to me signals the power of true anti-war working-class socialist ideals and how popular they once were in this country Back when a third party could run on the ballot, of course, which we know it's not really allowed today, but it is possible because it was done once. Yes, we have to fight for the right for all people to vote, but we also have to fight for political representation that gives us something worth fighting and worth voting for. We've done it before. We can do it again. Our lives depend on it. Follow LukeMon Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content.
0: And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary Gun Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie LukeMon, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us.
2: By any means necessary.
0: And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we are very happy to be joined by Albert St. John, community organizer and immigration advocate. Albert, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Peace. Glad to be here with y'all.
0: Absolutely. And we're glad to have you here with us, Albert. And uh, we have on the show been following closely uh, the developments inside Haiti as uh, the political and social uh, crisis seems to be deepening there. Of course, uh, most recently, uh, uh, very loud uh, calls from a massive protest uh, for the resignation of U.S.-backed leader, Dr. Ariel Henry. And, you know, one thing about uh, countries that are going through deep crises is that it, it, it oftentimes stokes migrant flows from that country for people seeking better conditions. And so anticipation of a surge of Haitian migrants, the Biden administration is weighing uh, certain options about how to respond to it, which could include temporarily holding Haitian migrants um, at a, a facility at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, or perhaps a, a third country country as well. Now, people, uh, I think, think of Guantanamo Bay as uh, simply of the prison where uh, terrorist suspects are held. I mean, certainly we know of uh, the horrors that go on there. But I think a lot of people in this country may not know for more than 30 years, Guantanamo has had a, a migrant operations center that houses people that the Coast Guard picks up in the Caribbean that reportedly is not a part of the prison and things like this. And so, I mean, just thinking back on it, even if if we look at, uh, September of last year, 2021, where we saw these images of more than 12,000 Haitian migrants, uh, uh huddled under a bridge in Del Rio, Texas. And I mean, you know, uh, some of those pictures look like a uh, scene out of roots, but, uh, Albert, I'm just sort of wondering what you make about the prospect of uh, Haitian migrants, uh, possibly being held in Guantanamo, if in fact that happens, and how do you see it as factoring into the Biden's administration's sort of, uh, uh Record, if you will, as it pertains to Haitian migrants.
3: Well, I think that um, we we talked about this before, maybe sometime earlier this year, last year, where uh, the Biden administration was considering us uh, sending Haitians there, um, and you know couldn't help but see the irony that it was almost exactly 30 years from the time when they um they, uh, um, they uh, the Aristide pool in 1991. When um when they first started uh, taking Haitians, by the tens of thousands, because people were leaving Haiti, leaving uh you know fleeing the brutal repression of um the military junta that was there at the time, that was underneath uh, uh Cedras, you know Sedlas at the time when um uh, uh, Haiti had a military, and um you know so people were were fleeing by the tens of thousands, and they packed them into Guantanamo by that same number. Um, and you know, and of course, this is when a lot of people, you know, I mean, obviously, Wetford Joffre came into play and simultaneously. Cuban migrants were being welcomed. Castro was not killing women and children, but um, in Haiti, that's what was going on. And now here we are. We find ourselves um, some thirty, thirty-one years later, and the same crisis is beginning to unfold. And again, um, the U.S. has a hand in it and doesn't want to take any kind of responsibility. At the same time, we just saw earlier this year, in a short period of time, the US uh welcomed over sixty thousand Ukrainian refugees. Um and you can even go back to the eighties and seventies and, and see where the US openly welcomed Eastern Europeans coming. It's not the first time that they've done that. Um welcome Eastern Europeans with very little conditions uh, uh versus um black uh migrants coming up or brown migrants coming up from this hemisphere. So, yeah, and, and so what we're seeing is the same thing again where we have the assassination of a president, which is most likely, if anybody knows the history, is greenlit by the United States. Um, we're seeing the um, oligarchy uh, consolidating its power at the behest of the United States. By controlling the ports and everything, and running guns onto the islands, guns that are coming from the United States, running them onto the islands through their ports and arming several gangs that are terrorizing um, people in communities where uprisings in Haiti are taking place. Now, these people um, naturally will be fleeing, and the people that would be fleeing more than likely are going to be the people who are against um, this um, imperial, you know, uh, US hegemony on the island and so you know that's another thing it's not just that they're black but also these people you know are going to mean more effect um if they if they come here they have an analysis um in Haiti people people know what's going on and then when you look at what was going on with the um folks coming up from South America and Brazil walking through um uh, nine different countries to get to the Mexican border Um, And those people are being sent back, uh, got sent back to Haiti en masse. And so you have this culmination of things where um, all this pressure is building up. And the United States is literally sweeping these black people under the rug, like just trying to get them out of here, like, you know, put them over to, uh, you know, send them back over to contain them somewhere. If not in Haiti, contain them in Guantanamo Bay. Um, Anywhere but here. They don't want them. On these shores, and it's clearly um due um, to racism.
1: And you know the fact that uh, Guantanamo Bay actually has had a migrant operation center that houses migrants picked up by the Coast Guard in the Caribbean for for thirty years, and it's actually not a part of the main Guantanamo Bay uh, prison for so-called terror suspects. That I think is really. an an interesting part of this conversation, because as much as we talk about Guantanamo Bay, Albert, we have, I don't think we've ever really talked about this migrant operations center. So this, you know, plan to uh, send uh, particularly Haitian migrants to this place, it's actually not even a new thing. The Biden administration is expanding it. And I, I mean, what, how do we uh, uh, parse through the fact that the United States government was able to keep this part of their little Guantanamo Bay project that, remember, Barack Obama said he was going to close, uh, pr- basically an open secret for all this time?
3: Yeah, well, what they did pretty much was, like, let it disappear from the, the masses' psyche. Like, oftentimes we can say, oh, like, you know, for the younger generations, perhaps You know, uh, younger millennials, Gen Z. You may not be aware that at one point in time, Guantanamo Bay once held refugees, um, both Cuban and Haitian. But um, they, but but the thing is, the fact that there are people who are older than that, who was who were adults or were young adults at the time when um, when when people were being processed and at Guantanamo at that time. I was in elementary school at the time when that was happening. I remember it vividly. Um, The conditions were terrible. Um, It it was so deplorable that they eventually, they stopped using it after a while. Um, And people forget that. And then it shifted over to the attention to Gitmo for for decades, especially after the war on terror. Um, So it's, and it's not just with Guantanamo, it's just a pattern of cognitive dissonance on a social level that we keep having because the media and these politicians want us to disassociate um, the current situation that we're seeing from our reality and from history so that that way, um, you know, without being able to connect the dots, having a critical analysis of the situation, a historical analysis of the situation, we'd be less likely to, to put up some kind of resistance against it. But, no, I mean, Guantanamo was infamous in the early 90s um, after, a, after 1991. And it, and it was especially cruel, too, because um, when you looked at, for example, um, I just said that they had both Cubans and Haitians. there. The Cuban state were very short compared to many of the Haitian state. And, and, and many of those Haitians ended up getting sent back to um, Haiti um to, to that violent repressive regime. So what does Biden intend to do in Guantanamo with these Haitians? I don't think he intends on processing them so that they can end up coming here. You know, so um so it it's really just to warehouse them until they can uh get the situation in Haiti under uh to their liking um before they uh send them back. That's this is what I this is the only logical conclusion that I could come to.
0: Yeah, I mean, that 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 makes sense, Albert, because it seems to follow from the fact that, you know, we've seen Ariel Henry call for another uh, foreign intervention of Haiti. And it's clear that that's necessary because he simply has uh, no control in the country and he has no control because he has no mandate from the people to actually be in power. He's not the choice of the Haitian people. He's the choice of Washington. And the Haitian people are very uh, uh, aware of that. And in the same way that, uh, uh, you know, basically uh, the uh, sort of uh, puppeteers, if you will, of uh, uh, the Haitian government um, need feel like they need to basically stabilize the situation and the migrants and where they're held seem to be part and parcel of that. But the point you made about the racism inherent in uh, uh, the fact that this is even being considered, I think, can't be overstated, uh, uh, Albert, particularly when we consider that at least a hundred thousand refugees from Ukraine have made their way to the U.S. since uh, Russia's invasion on February 24th of this year. And it was never even uh, uh, discussed or considered about sticking them in uh, a center near a prison or things like that. But here we have uh, these black Haitians who are also uh, uh, being uh, victimized by U.S. imperialism, not getting Anywhere near uh, That kind of Human consideration And I mean Speaking of Ukraine We can't forget about um, In the early days Of the invasion Those images coming out About uh, uh, Africans And Caribbean people In the country uh, Not even being allowed On trains to leave And so When one considers Uh, Haiti's history, both uh, in the past and up until this very day, and how white supremacy uh, really has bedeviled this country for the entirety of of its existence, then we see that there's sort of a clear line or a lineage from that moment up until today where uh, uh, Haitians are still facing uh, this deeply racist treatment.
3: Yeah. And and there's two things I want to say to that. So number one, the, the Haitian people haven't had a choice in their home president since um, before the earthquake, since since when, else, when they put it out. Um, you know, we as we all know, uh, the leak printing, the leak, you uh, from Hillary Clinton showed that the Martin administration um, was, was, was done by election tampering and installed in there. We see that um, Jovenel, the same thing, election tampering, and then um, he was installed in there. And now in this case, it, it gets more egregious over time. So now in, in this case here with Aya they just um, forwent an election. They knocked off a president and put someone in, and uh, not having any conversations about when the next round of democratic process is going to happen, and just expect people to um to to eat that. And then in addition to that considering I mean it's it's so it's such bold face repression. Um the fact that you see that everyone can see that the majority of the Haitian people do not want this man for president. It's clear undermining of black self determination to say, well, the UN will have to intervene. When unanimously these people are telling you not to intervene in their country, the only segment of um of the Haitian population is unanimously um, in support of uh, an intervention with the bourgeoisie, who make up maybe like less than 5% of the country. And then the second point I want to make to you is this, this also shows on the domestic side how little the Democrats care about the black vote in particular. Because, I mean, you're from Florida, Sean. If you can estimate, um, it, I mean, and, and you know that Florida is a swing state, and it's a state that The Democrats always fought hard to campaign for and to get in everything. Now, if you could guess that black people in Florida are a huge part of the Democratic vote, a huge part. Now, what percentage of that black vote in Florida are Haitian Americans? Now, is it that they know that the media brainwashing is so deep that they don't have to worry about the Haitian vote in South Florida? Um so, so much to the extent that they can get away with this, or is it that, that they simply just do not care? You know, those—that's another question that I that I have about um, about this, because um, a lot of this is blatant disrespect, and yet they still expect to get those votes when they go campaigning in that swing state for um, for for black votes.
1: Yeah, and I think this raises the issue of international solidarity, Albert. How? Do we respond to you know the cynical actions by the Democratic Party to pander for black votes, even as this very same party is you know treating uh, black immigrants so disrespectfully and, and inhumanely, all while at the same time continuing the imperialist uh, uh, aggression toward Cuba with continuing to control uh, Guantanamo Bay uh, and the continued theft of that land uh, from uh, the Cuban people?
3: There needs to be, uh, I mean, the, 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 the um, global South, particularly the Black global South, needs to be able to speak with one voice to denounce this, um, whether it's through, um, in the bodies of the UN or wherever. They need to um, stand up and say that this is wrong, this is undermining Black self-determination, and also point out the juxtaposition of how they treat Cuban migrants and also just how they treat Cuba in general. You know, the fact that we saw that in the um, uh, conference that they had in Los Angeles earlier this year, um, they excluded Cuba, but they invited Haiti, and they excluded Cuba on the grounds so that it wasn't democratic. Meanwhile, in Haiti, you have someone who wasn't elected by anybody. Nobody fought for him to be in power the way that they did for Castro, and nobody um, elected to him to be in power. He has no mandate, like you said, whatsoever. But yet he was there. It tells you that. um, I mean, it's blatant puppetry at this point. It's the um, the strings are as thick as rope. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so
0: much, Albert, for joining us today. We're gonna leave it there. We move to a break here. On by any means necessary on Radio Spudic in Washington D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us by any means necessary on radio sputnik in washington dc i'm your host sean blackman here with jackie lukeman and as always we are your guide for connecting the political social and economic movements shaping the world around us And today we're having an on the ground update from the elections in Israel. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today from Tel Aviv by John Kiriyaku, co-host of Political Misfits, which you can hear from 12 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on Radio Sputnik. John, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be
4: with you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. And John, uh, this week, Israel uh, has gone to the ballot box for the fifth time in three years. And uh, the uh, early results uh, seem to suggest that uh, former prime minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his Likud party are projected to win 31 seats in the Israeli parliament, also known as the Knesset. Uh, and this is coming with 84 percent of the vote uh, counted. And this is according to Congress. Uh, an Israeli uh, public broadcaster While uh, current Prime Minister Yair Lapid And his uh, Yesh Atid party Is projected to win 24 seats uh, it's been reported That early this morning uh, Netanyahu uh, told a crowd of supporters That they were quote On the cusp of a very great victory He added We need to wait for the final results But one thing is already clear Our path The Likud's path Has proven itself And uh, so John Just wondering What you've been seeing uh, What kind of conversation have you been having uh, since you've been able to be on the ground there, Linda, sort of what the sentiment is? And what do you think this development could mean
4: for Israeli politics? Well, it it looks on paper like Likud's uh, victory is a narrow one. Um, I think that that's not true. I think by Israeli political standards, this is a very strong victory for Benjamin Netanyahu, his party, Likud, and three associated ultra-Orthodox and Zionist parties. Usually, usually Israeli prime ministers have to cobble together coalitions that include multiple parties. That's not the case here, at least it, it isn't to the extent that we've seen in the previous uh, elections. There's 85% of the vote that's been counted, and Likud is projected to win 30 to 32 seats. But It's associated parties that, like I said, the Zionist parties and the ultra-Orthodox parties are looking to bring in another 30 to 33 seats. So Netanyahu could end up governing with a majority of 65 to 55, which is dramatic. I think uh, this was actually a pretty easy victory for him.
1: Wow, that's really wild considering this is the fifth time. Uh, Israelis have uh, had an election and gone to the polls since 2019. And it's really crazy that Netanyahu is about to win again, considering he still faces trial on corruption charges. I mean, what have people been saying about that aspect of a potential Netanyahu uh, administration again?
4: Well, you know, Jackie, this is really interesting to me because you guys talk about it. We talk about it on on political misfits. The American, you know, media, CNN. They say Netanyahu's under indictment. He could uh, face, you know, a uh, uh, felony conviction. And here in Israel, nobody cares. They just kind of chuckle when you mention it to them. And uh, I, I was speaking a couple of days ago uh, with one Israeli uh, think tank uh, professor, who told me that all Netanyahu has to do to make these charges go away is fire the attorney general. Now, he has said that he won't do that. But if he does, the charges go away with the attorney general, as crazy as that sounds. And remember, too, that not only is Netanyahu under indictment for corruption, so is his wife. She's also indictment uh, under indictment for corruption. But for most Israelis, this nebulous issue of security, in air quotes, is far more important than corruption.
0: And what is this uh, uh, security concern? I mean,
4: is that just a euphemism for Palestinians or exactly. what does that mean? <laughs> exactly. Every Israeli thinks that every Palestinian wants to kill them. It's, it's been really shocking to me. There's this obsession with what they describe just vaguely as security. Conversely, I've spoken to dozens of Palestinians since I've gotten here, and they're just cowed by the might of Israel. You know, you want to talk about politics with Palestinians? Immediately, they go into a whisper. They don't want anybody to hear them. They didn't, they didn't bother to vote. Uh, turnout was around 39% among Israeli Arabs. And, of course, Palestinians don't have any right to vote. So it's like they're afraid of the Israelis. The Israelis are afraid of them. But the Israelis are far, far more powerful. Yeah, I'm I'm in West Jerusalem right now. I'm only about six-tenths of a mile from East Jerusalem. And um there was a something of a of a riot in East Jerusalem last night. All night long, you could hear sirens and gunfire and and horns blasting and and this is typical. Now, you go to some place like Nablus, where there really is an uprising, and it's far worse. There was a report today of what the Israelis call a terrorist attack. Um, what it was was uh, two Israeli uh, youths attacked a. Uh, Uh, I'm sorry, two Palestinian youths attacked an Israeli soldier. The Israeli fired back and killed one of them. That's, you know, an uprising, a riot or whatever. That's what they mean when they talk about security. They're afraid of attacks on Israeli troops and Israeli police, and they're especially afraid of Palestinian attacks on settlers. The truth is, it's the settlers who are attacking Palestinians.
0: Yeah. And th- this is important to note. Uh, number one, when we talk about a uh, uh, sort of uh, collective consciousness in Israel, if we want to call it that, it, it completely conflates the whole of the Palestinian people with terrorism itself. But in my humble opinion, what they're calling terrorism is really just a resistance to an occupying force, to an uh, apartheid state. And you know, in, in, in any Israeli election, when you take a look at the ballot, and this is what is funny to me about, like when you read in the mainstream media about how this party in Israel is right wing, this party is centrist, this uh, uh, party is so on and so forth. I was reading the Washington Journal was saying a couple of what they described as left wing parties may make the threshold. I mean, fundamentally, you're looking at different flavors of Zionism, you know what I mean? And I feel like it, it's typically just sort of a question of how virulent uh, uh, the racism is uh, going to be and how explicit it is, depending on uh, which element we're discussing. But given what we've discussed here, John, um, about Netanyahu, the ongoing corruption charges facing him um, and his wife, I mean, how is it uh, that you think that he's been able to make yet another seemingly uh, successful play for power? I mean, he was already uh, Israel's longest serving prime minister. Some people even called him the king of Israel. I mean, he's he's like the Teflon Don of politics in that country. And I'm just wondering how.
4: I was talking to a, a member of Yair Lapid's government yesterday, and I asked that very question, Sean, and he said that in the history of the state of Israel, there has never been a politician as good at politics as Benjamin Netanyahu. Never. Everybody else has has some sort of a fault, a fault that, that you know, at some point precludes them from advancing any farther. Netanyahu doesn't. He's so tough with the Palestinians, not afraid to kill or to order people killed, um, not afraid to go to war with Iran, which he's begged us repeatedly to do with him. Um, and the Israelis just love that. Even if you even if you hate Benjamin Netanyahu as a person or as a politician, you respect his political abilities. It's really quite dramatic. We, we don't have a similar politician in the United States that we can point to like that.
1: And, you know, I always ask the question about the existence of and the participation of and and I guess the usefulness of uh, several Arab uh, parties in uh, the Palestinian, uh, sorry, in the Israeli government. I mean, what are people saying about them? I mean, are they just window dressing and what role would they play in uh, this coalition government? And will it benefit the Palestinians at all?
4: Wow, Jackie, those are probably the three most important questions that a person can ask about this election. So there are four uh, Arab-Israeli parties. These are Palestinian Arabs who are Israeli citizens. So they are allowed to vote. There are four parties. One of them is an Islamist party. As crazy as that may sound, there is an Islamist party. The other three are secular parties. And they actually did participate in the last coalition government. They have nothing to show for it. Nothing. Settlements continue to pace. More Palestinians have been killed this year than since I think it was 1999 or something like that, 2005, whatever. And so they have nothing to show for their participation. That's why Palestinian turnout was so low this time. I told you it it averages 45 percent. This year it was 39 percent. So – there's fallout from that. One of the Arab parties called Balad. It means the nation. This was a this was a secular left of center party that supports you know a peace process and return to the 67 borders and all that stuff. They didn't even make the three and a quarter percent threshold, so they're not represented in the Knesset. Similarly, Meretz, one of the longest active parties in Israel, also a left of center party didn't make the three and a quarter percent threshold, they're out. The remaining Arab parties um, that made the three and a quarter percent are going to have, I think I saw today so far, and the counting's not done yet, but so far six seats in the Knesset, they're not going to be a factor in any way. Netanyahu would never, ever enter into a coalition government with Arabs, never. Uh, Lapid would and others before Lapid would – uh, you know Avigdor Lieberman, even the the head of the of the party that that mostly caters to Russian and Ukrainian Jews, but uh, the Palestinians are just sort of left out in the cold, and they know it, and they know that other Palestinians who are not Israeli citizens, especially in the West Bank, consider them to be traitors for even being in the Knesset and working with the Israeli government. So there's really no good news here for the Palestinians, none at all.
0: Yeah and honestly uh taking that into consideration John I'm wondering if you think this election could could signal any real shift in the status quo uh, within Israel at all, you know what I mean? Uh, uh, Even, you know, uh, I mean, despite, and I don't even know necessarily what differences there may be between um, uh, uh, the uh, Yair Lapid's party and, and Likud and things like that. I mean, but it seems to me that both internally and externally, it doesn't feel like a lot will fundamentally change here. And when I say externally, I'm speaking specifically about the role that Israel plays as an outpost of US interests in the region
4: and so on both of those counts how do you see it yeah I think you're exactly right Sean uh, nothing will fundamentally change here there is no two-state solution it's dead it's gone there's only one party that's talking about a no state uh, a two-state solution and it did not meet the threshold so it won't be represented in the Knesset uh, I think what what Netanyahu is going to focus on uh, is, strengthening relations with the United States that were severely damaged when he was prime minister and uh, Barack Obama was was president. Uh, I think that Netanyahu believes he could probably work with Joe Biden, but I think he's going to just sort of wait quietly for a Republican to defeat Joe Biden. And I think that because Netanyahu was left out of the Abraham Accords, he wasn't prime minister at the time. He wants to make some sort of progress with Saudi Arabia. I can't foresee at any point ever Saudi Arabia and Israel having diplomatic relations, but they don't need to have diplomatic relations. What they need is a defense and intelligence relationship. Now, there's a nascent one now, and I could see that improving with the U.S. brokering that improvement uh, in the next several years with, with Benjamin Netanyahu as prime minister.
0: Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, John, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luqman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about developments inside Peru. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Ali Vargas, a writer and journalist with Radio Casa Coca. Ali, thanks so much for joining
5: us. Thanks for having me on again.
0: Absolutely. And Ali, the uh, Organization of American States is set to uh, release a report on conditions inside Peru. Now, this follows a recent appeal from a Peruvian president, Pedro Castillo, who asked the OAS to come to Peru to send a mission in order to, quote, analyze the situation, which came not long after uh, Castillo himself uh, accused officials that were investigating him of trying to plot a coup d'etat and said that uh, this mission would be necessary in order to prevent, quote, a serious alteration of the democratic order of Peru. Now, uh, Harold Forsyth, the permanent representative of Peru to the Organization of American States, gave remarks to Radio Exitosa saying, quote, we hope that this final report will be a factor of unity for the Peruvian family and that all of us know how to put an end to this confrontation which has been wearing us down so much and has been causing us so much damage for many years. So, Ali, you know, help us understand uh, the context uh, of what's happening here. Uh, Why Castillo uh, feels there were efforts to uh, basically overthrow him and why he appealed to the OAS uh, for this mission.
5: Yeah, well, his appeal to the OAS shows the uh, total... Sort of ideological confusion, or rather, complete absence of any kind of guiding uh, thinking behind his government. But it, in general, he—it uh, it is true that there is, there has been really from day one an attempt by uh, the, the the Peruvian state, really, to get rid of him. That that includes the the Congress, in which the right the right wing parties have a majority, have been trying constantly to. Uh, bring about some sort of impeachment uh blocking lots you know most of his initiatives and now also the sort of state prosecutor's office uh the, is now t- attempting to to do the same so he, he definitely feels cornered and there's definitely an attempt by the you'd say the 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 state you know the, the permanent state uh to to get rid of him and those are the sort of forces that lost the election in 2021, people are uh, loyal to Fukimori, but also some people, uh, sort of uh, more centrist establishment figures that feel that this uh, his government is just uh, t- just a bit too chaotic and that they want to you know essentially take over. But the fact that he has gone to the OAS is, I think, a symptom of the fact that he's got no one left around, well, no one left to defend him because the government of Pedro Castillo, as many of you will know, was elected on um, as as a left-wing candidate, as a candidate of the socialist, or say rather Marxist-Leninist, Pedro Libre Party. Uh, that was the platform which he was elected on promises like uh, bringing in a new constitution, nationalizing natural resources. And once in government, it appeared like that was something that's going to happen. So the first prime minister he appointed was a figure from that uh, sort of Marxist, Pedro Libre party. However, pretty quickly, I think about just a a month or so into that, he sort of broke with Pedro Libre, made an alliance with uh, the centrist parties uh, in Congress and appointed one of them as prime minister um, and and, and to the different government ministries, that includes the foreign ministry, in which his first appointment was uh, a Marxist professor who uh, reestablished ties with Venezuela and Cuba, etc. But then that person was then uh, changed for a more centrist figure that tacked more towards a, a more U.S. friendly policy. So there was a total realignment within the government, uh, essentially pivoting towards the, the centrist groups. Within Congress, and since then, none of the main policy uh, promises from the campaign have been implemented. The uh, new constitution has just not happened; has not even begin to happen. The nationalisation of natural resources hasn't happened at all. Uh, the promises of a second agrarian reform, um, which many people, you know, especially indigenous communities in Peru, we're hoping for for more equal distribution of land that was talked about in the campaign it is now does not happen either. He had a sort of a big media launch for what he called the second agrarian reform, but that basically included no nothing about structures of land ownership. It was just about like are oh, we going to provide some uh, some technical assistance and uh, some some more help for farmers, but not touching the question of land and Land ownership. So none of the hopes that people had for the government have been fulfilled. So when there are these attempts to get rid of him by those further to his right, there's no one to defend him. Essentially, there's no one going to. No one's going to come out onto the streets, uh, you know, risk themselves to defend the government that has not done anything uh, that it promised. That has not done anything positive for the people that voted for it. So he feels incredibly isolated. His, his brand has become very toxic. And it's clear that he definitely won't be able to run for another term. So he's just trying to extend, at least stay for as long as uh, his term permits. And really, who else has he got? If he if he's not going to go to the OAS, where else can he go? He hasn't really got anyone. No one's going to come to his defence.
0: Yeah, you know, I got to admit I'm I'm pretty saddened by how things have unfolded in uh, Peru since the election of uh, Castillo Ali, because it seems that from the very beginning, uh, the administration was being wracked by uh, issues and conflict coming both from uh, right wing political elements inside Peru. And there even appeared to be some issues, perhaps even within uh, the Peru Libre camp as well. And all the things that you have uh, laid out uh, uh, are are clearly a, a big factor in all of This as well. So, I mean, this is a broad question, but I mean, how is it that things develop to this point? I mean, you just touched on it some in terms of a a policy, but it it, it honestly feels like the Castillo government wasn't even really able to uh, take off uh, in a sense or in the way that uh, I think a lot of us thought it would.
5: Yeah, it certainly doesn't have any base at all. Um, It's kind of a, I'd say the government is. Kind of a collection of individuals, um, individuals with no kind of political or social base, and that is really the the core of the weakness. And the the reason for this is that well, Pedro Castillo himself was not a member of the Peru Libre Party. He was a union leader, and they invited him in because he was uh, he had some sort of a pro- he had somewhat of a profile because he led some teacher strikes in like 2017, I think it was. But he he was he wasn't part of Perú Libre, and he, he, I think his, ideologically he's not as as formed as Perú Libre party leaders are. And I think once he became president, establishment figures sort of whispered, told him that you know that they would support him if he broke with Perú Libre, if he broke with the left, and you know put aside those policies. And I think he believed them. And now what's what's happened is that that same establishment has also abandoned him. But the people who supported him, the social movements and voters in general, they abandoned him long ago because of the fact that he uh, broke his central campaign promises. So now he's been left with with almost no one, really, um, including the many... I mean, his ministers change every few months. um, People resigning, people leaving, people... You know, can tell that this is not the not the winning horse, so to speak. So many people are jumping ship. He's having to bring in all kinds of people, almost out of nowhere. And yeah, I think it's just a sit and duck presidency, really. And that's why the right wing groups see their opportunity to uh, get rid of him in um, either through some sort of legislative coup or through other powers of the state. You know the the justice system uh, doing their own coup against him. And I think it would be a coup. At the end of the day, he was elected to serve uh, a four year term, and these establishment figures that want to get rid of him are trying to violate that.
1: Yeah, and it's that, that uh, justice system aspect of uh, trying to get rid of him that is really uh, interesting, also, and a big part of this because. Castillo is apparently facing six investigations uh, by the prosecutor's office. What are those investigations about?
5: Oh, they're very—they're they're very, uh, um, <laughs> they're, they're very flimsy things that don't really have anything. I mean, in, in most countries, wouldn't be regarded. So, I think one of them was the fact that uh, he was taking some meetings in his personal home. Uh, rather than at the presidential palace, and people say, "Oh well, if he's in his personal home, then he's not registered, and we can't see who's going in now." I think that's you know not uh, not a reason for an entire president to be to be jailed and and, and overthrown. Uh, it, the, all of these things are just or it's just various procedural matters to do with Congress and communications with Congress. All of these uh, the, you know that people trying to find legal loopholes uh, to to to, Wolf, to overturn his presidency. And I think they, they, they can quite rightly assess that if they are able to do it sort of legally, then they, they will be able to themselves take power because they're not going to face resistance on the streets. They're not going to face strikes or protests because no one is motivated to do this. No one's motivated to mo- mobilize for Pedro Castillo I think if uh, most polls show that people, most Peruvians oppose what the Congress and the justice system are doing. They see it as very unfair. They see it as, um, you know, uh, the actions of, of of sore losers. But at the same time, while they would oppose, you know, if you ask them in an opinion poll, if they oppose it, they do. Are they going to take the extra step to actually take to the streets, uh, to the point of even risking their own lives to confront? Uh, That, too, if it happens, the answer is 100% no. Yeah,
0: that definitely seems to be the case. And I'm also wondering, I mean, at this point, uh, do we know or or does it seem like, you know, Peru Libre may... What's sort of the word I'm looking for? I mean, do you think they'll continue to sort of be uh, a considerable political force there in Peru? Do you think that there may be some uh, other political elements that may want to make a, a play for power there with a, a less uh, progressive program? And I think maybe really this is a question about the political landscape in Peru uh, uh, within this moment, uh, You know, given all these issues with Castillo.
5: Well, the Peru and Liberia are completely out of government. They, have, they don't have any role at all in government, mm. um, which, again, uh, like I said at the beginning, at the be- like the first month of Pedro Castillo's presidency, it seemed like they almost had the whole of the government. They had ministers, they had uh, the, the prime minister, and now that's just being 100% cut out. Uh, so they are just one of many... Parties now in Congress, they don't have a majority. I think they are technically the largest party because in the first round, basically the seats allocated depend on what uh the presidential vote was in the first round. And they were the largest, but it's like 18%, right? So they got about they got less than 20% of seats in Congress. And although the other parties are smaller, they especially the right-wing parties are on the same page and they can work together so as a block they they are a lot bigger um, whether you know they can survive like beyond this term I don't know but they people don't they, they used to be a more regional party they didn't necessarily used to be a national party uh, they existed more in the sort of Andean areas of Peru and they only became a national party. Because of Pedro Castillo's shock performance in the first round. And no one expected him to come first in the first round. Uh, and then suddenly everyone was like, oh, there's this, there's this party that exists. And he came first enough, as I said, with 18%. So not overwhelming either. Uh, so if, you know, something, if it goes up like a rocket, then maybe it will go down like a stick as well. And on the left, there's, the only other party in Congress is called uh, Juntos por Perú, which is a lot... I'd, I'd classify that as more of a, a liberal uh, party, mostly popular among the middle class in uh, in, Li- <laughs> in Lima, in the big cities. A very small base. I think they got about 7% in the first round, so they got about 7% of seats in Congress, which is obviously not a significant... Uh, portion, so you know they they themselves could lose their their space at the next elections. So it's unclear who what part of the left would pick up the the baton, so to speak. Uh, and for a lot of years before all of this, the Peruvian left was incredibly weak, one of the weakest in Latin America for a number of sort of historical reasons. Uh, part, you know, chief among them, I'd say. The period of the civil war with the shining path a lot of left-wing parties were sort of persecuted out of existence um, under the excuse that they were allied to shining path even though many opposed the shining path uh, and so the, there wasn't a great deal amount of the organized left you know still in existence uh, and people thought that 2021 would be the moment in which uh, left returns but that lesson now is also seemed to be crumbling somewhat.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Ali, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. we move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Spudek in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: to by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But That's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us.
1: That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at by any means necessary here in Washington, D.C., you can do that by calling us at Three twenty 20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202 521 1320. That's 202 521 1320. But you can also listen to our shows at Sputniknews.com/slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital, and you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington DC area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B A M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 320 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it. We We want to hear from you.
0: We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, some promising news at the top of the hour today, as it's being reported that the Ethiopian government under Abiy Ahmed and the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front have agreed to what's being called a cessation of hostilities in this two year conflict that has seen uh, a lot of bloodshed and uh, just a lot of uh, brutality and harm that has uh, caused Uh, as a result. Now, of course, this is still a a new sort of development. A lot of things remain to be seen, but uh, a welcome development nonetheless. Also at the top of the hour, Jair Bolsonaro, the now ex-president of Brazil, uh, has finally spoke out after a day or so of silence following his uh, defeat, falling to uh, former President uh, Lula da Silva. Uh, And interestingly, he didn't actually concede defeat. Uh, in his remarks, but did uh, seem to imply that he was willing to go along with a peaceful transition of uh, power. Uh, He uh, said during a brief address, quote, I have always been labeled undemocratic and unlike my accusers, I have always played within the four lines of the Constitution. That's right. Jair Bolsonaro, law abiding citizen. Uh, I also think there's a lot to be seen here as well, but uh, uh, for now, another welcome development. Also, the Federal Reserve uh, has made history with a fourth straight rate hike of three quarters of a percentage point today. Uh, This would bring the central bank's uh, benchmark's lending rate to a new target range of 3.75% to 4%. Now, that's the highest. The Fed uh, has the fund rate has been since January of 2008, 14 years. ISIS been in 14 years. So the economic uh, situation in uh, the United States continues to deteriorate. Hashtag SOS USA. But be that as it may, we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Gloria Lariva, coordinator of the Cuba and Venezuela Solidarity Committee and co-founder of the Hotway Project, which you can check out at hotwayproject.org. Gloria, thanks so much for joining us.
6: Hello, Jackie and Sean. How are you doing?
0: doing well Gloria doing well so glad we could have you on today and you know, Gloria, on the show, we've been marking what we consider to be uh, uh, an encroaching uh, right-wing attack on uh, Democratic rights here in the United States. And the overturning of the Roe v. Wade decision seemed to be of uh, the switch that the right was waiting to flip in order to open the floodgate to wage an all-out assault on things that they've been wanting to go after for some time. And uh, the next target appears— uh, uh, like it will be uh, uh, an attempt to abolish affirmative action in education. And, you know, there's a uh, uh, Supreme Court uh, uh, hearings and things like that that have been going on uh, over the last few days uh, uh, in connection to this. So I was hoping you could help us understand just what's happening here. Obviously, it's it's going on in the context of uh, a, a Supreme Court with a conservative a supermajority. But uh, what's happening with this piece? Where is it emanating from? And what do you think we need to understand about this, Gloria?
6: Thank you. Well, yes, on Monday this week, the Supreme Court heard the arguments of both sides in two cases that are basically linked. There are two different universities. One is private Harvard University and the other is the University of North Carolina. And the plaintiff in these two cases is something called the Students for Fair Admissions, SFFA. But in fact, it's not a student group, really. They're kind of a front. The real perpetrator behind it is a man named Edward Bloom, a financier of racist court cases, including one that really gutted much of the Voting Rights Act in 2013 by the Supreme Court. But that's another matter. In this case, the Students for Fair Admissions against University of North Carolina and Harvard argues that any consideration of race in a student's admission is itself racist. And they say that it constitutes the, the a violation of the Constitution 14th Amendment, the one that says equal protection under the law. So it's a very twisted argument by them. In fact, they even use the historic Brown versus the Board of Education, the one that desegregated the schools in the South, um, because they say that by the Supreme Court saying that black and white schools could no longer be separate from each other, that that means that it was race neutral. And everybody knows that the basis of Brown versus Board of Education was Recognizing the extreme apartheid system of Southern states education, the official segregation, and that black children's schools were abhorrent conditions, the children were psychologically damaged by very inferior schooling, and that was a recognition of the role that race played. But now you have in the Supreme Court hearing this so-called Students for Fair Admission saying, oh, no, Brown says that race shouldn't matter at all. Therefore, in the hearings, I listened to the whole oral arguments and the six right-wing racist judges, the justices, um, each one of them had their their, their bashing of the defendants being Harvard University and the University of North Carolina. And so that's where we're at. They, it sounds very, very likely that the, the consideration of race, of universities that would say, okay, uh, this is an African-American student, this is a Latino student, these students um, for diversity of the university, that's the basic... That's about the only argument that the universities can use now because of the whittling away of, abor- of a affirmative action in previous cases. What the universities use is to say, we need diversity. We need more than just white students. So that is the situation, and it would be a drastic blow. In fact, the attorney for Harvard, who said at one point, he was asked, well, what with the plan that the plaintiffs propose of so-called race neutral, what would that do to the admissions of Harvard? And the uh, attorney for Harvard said, you know, it would in the humanities, it would reduce, potentially reduce the matriculation of black students from 14% to between six and 7%. In other words, half, this is their admission of the plaintiffs in their documents. And the six judges look like they're going to rule in favor of that.
0: Yeah and you know what struck me uh Gloria in, in in researching this was how the SFFA uh is proposing uh what they're calling a race neutral alternative uh uh at Harvard and you know that it's connected to this whole idea about a uh, uh, color blindness and things like that that um I feel like right wingers like this sort of use to try to kind of uh, uh, cover up uh, their racist intentions because how can there be a race neutral in uh Uh, alternative when there's been no fundamental remedy or even real attempt at remedying uh, uh, white supremacy, both within this society and in terms of how it shows up in education. You know what I mean? And so it it, it seems to me fundamentally dishonest on its face. And also, I think, exposes uh, the intentions of uh, the folks bringing this case.
6: Absolutely. And in, in in society now, in the last several years with the struggles of uh, against racism, against police brutality, against racial profiling, everything in society, everybody knows that the situation's getting worse. And the gap between rich and poor is more reflected among black families and Latino, native, and of course Asian. You know, I think the very cynical Weapon being used in both cases. Well, of course, they argue that white students are affected negatively, but SFFA is saying Asian students are also harmed by affirmative action. And as I say in my article, which I just that was just published this week in Liberation News, is that the Asian American community of different bodies, legal and community have filed amicus briefs on behalf of Harvard and the University of, of North Carolina and for affirmative action saying that to attempt to characterize Asian Pacific Americans as victims of race-conscious admissions programs is, is an outrage. And that Asian, American, Asian Pacific Americans, in fact, strongly support race-conscious admissions programs and the benefits of diversity. In the environmental in, in the educational environment, so this is a an argument against this race neutrality, but it's very insidious and is trying to pit one community against another, especially when we consider that black students have been absolutely the most harmed by not just the the, the admittance to school, but in jobs, hiring, retention, and everything in u s society,
1: yeah, that's absolutely true, Gloria. And I like that you point out in your article that affirmative action was not something that was just bestowed upon us by the benevolence of the Supreme Court of this country or by the 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 uh, um the kindness of politicians, it was actually won through people's struggles. So can you talk about that a little bit and give us some insight into how we are going to uh, ensure that affirmative action uh, remains protected uh, in the face of the clear intent by the Supreme Court uh, to dismantle
6: it? Yes, just in the education sphere, in education itself, Because there have been also other affirmative action struggles. One example is in in jobs with the fire departments, historically across the country, which were just all white. And the black uh, firefighters, a handful of black firefighters, had to fight and fight and fight till they won. um, Much more of an integration process and affirmative action. But in the university... The 1960s was a site of many, many struggles of Black students and then later Latino, youth of color. And in Columbia University, for example, um, which was mostly like a white-led struggle, but the students were fighting and they shut down the campus for a time against the fact that the university was encroaching on the Black community with this expansion of its property and buildings and so on. That was one. The, the big one was in 1968, San Francisco State University, when the black students took on the state, San Francisco State University in demanding ethnic studies, um, African-American studies department. And it ended up being a five-month struggle. It was a five-month shutdown of education at the school. Danny Glover was one of them. There are many, many uh, longstanding black activists who were part of that struggle and it was vicious. The police were like an occupation army on the campus for almost five months. Finally, the school relented and the first ethnic studies department or school actually in the whole country was established at San Francisco state university. And then in Brandeis, I know that one most because I attended Brandeis in January, 69 black students at Brandeis took over this famous Ford hall. I remember when I came into school several years later, everyone talked about the Ford hall takeover and it was the black students who took it over for 11 days to demand an African and African-American studies department. Um, After the strike, the university agreed to establish that department, one of the first in the country. And then the demands came about for affirmative action for dozens of students to come in based on quotas to say, we want these numbers filled, I think it's very important to know that in the in this decade of the 60s uh, and later 70s, the idea of quotas was an essential demand because you could tell the university, we want you to admit more people of color, and the school would say, well, we can't find them. We can't find them. And so the numbers, it's not like, oh, trying to find anybody. There are endless numbers of students, Black, Latino, and others, who can be admitted to a school and make it academically. So the key was to have the numbers and that's what they did at Brandeis. In fact, the students also had the right to travel to other cities and look for poor students, to look for students who were very disadvantaged. So in my senior year in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I was admitted to to two universities, but no money. I didn't know where I was going. This young Chigana woman came into my school. She was a student at Brandeis, and she said, she called some of us into the office by the counselor and said, apply at Brandeis. There's scholarships there. I applied. I got accepted. Four-year scholarship, 92% coverage. It was very, you know, affordable. I only had to pay a small amount of money. And it opened the door for me. I mean, it changed my life. And I found, because, see, I didn't realize... It wasn't my individual effort at being a good student. It was that the black students years before me had taken over the campus, risked their own education. They could have been expelled and opened the door for me and hundreds of others. No, so, but right away, as soon as the schools around the country began to implement affirmative action, came the aggression against it. And one of the first was the Bakke decision, the infamous Bakke decision, which was a white uh, man, Alan Bakke in California, who had applied to the University of California at Davis for medical school. He already had like uh, a master's degree already, but he didn't make the cut grade wise. And so, because out of a hundred admissions to the school, 16, only 16 were set aside for youth of color. He claimed that he was discriminated against by that quota. Remember I said quota? And the Supreme Court in 1978 ruled that quotas were illegal, unconstitutional. And that was a huge blow. I know I was in those demonstrations in Washington because that's something that I would have been affected by And the argument that I just said, that it's necessary to force numbers and percentages. Um, Then came other decisions, just a string of decisions by the Supreme Court, which always still said race can be a factor. Now, what are the other factors? Uh, Legacy, meaning if your parents went to that school, which tends to favor people with more money, generational. And the other is... um, You know, there's other considerations. But the most important is race. And now, out of many, many factors, that will be the one that will be knocked out by the Supreme Court next year when they issue their expected ruling. And as I said, with the hearing Monday, the oral arguments, it was very clear. There was no justice. There was no sense of justice. One thing that was interesting was that, in the 2003 ruling of Grutter versus Bollinger, that was the last Supreme Court ruling that said, yes, race can be a factor. Um, Sandra Day O'Connor said, well, you know, in a comment, she goes, we don't expect that affirmative action will be needed, that race will be needed as a factor, a consideration in about 25 years, okay? That's about 2028. and so they kept chirping on that. The Supreme Court justices, the right wing, kept saying, well, Justice D. O'Connor said 25 years. Do you really expect um, affirmative action uh, race consideration to last that long? And, I mean, she, she had, she had, who was Justice D. O'Connor? She didn't have the experience on the issue of race and the experience for the Black, Latino, and other people of color. Who was she to say that, that it's not going to be needed? It's needed more than ever.
0: Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luquemann. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's two. 025211320 myself and Jackie Lukman continue to be joined by Gloria Lariva and Gloria uh, continuing our conversation about uh, affirmative action there's another piece here that's been happening concerning the Indian Child Welfare Act and uh, the way this plays out could have some serious impact on Native Americans in this country so i was hoping you could break down just what is the ICWA and what's happening with it here
6: Yes, the Indian Child Welfare Act, ICWA, uh, by its initials, was a law that was passed in 1978 that guarantees that Native children who are either taken from their parents because of inability to raise them or orphaned are first to be um, considered for adoption within the Native nation that that child is from. And if no one is available to raise them, then in the wider Native community. But the idea is to, because of the legacy of Native children being kidnapped from their homes to the these racist, um, torturing Indian schools, so-called, and also because so many children were adopted out to white families and completely denied their culture, that This law came about by the struggle. Again, the struggle. This is where every gain comes. And that was uh, with the longest walk of 1976. So many things that took place. But now there are two cases where families are demanding the overturning of the Indian Child Welfare Act. And, of course, race plays the key ingredient. But there's another interesting argument from all the Native nations, uh, including the American Indian, the Congress of American Indians, the National Congress of American Indians, which encompasses all the almost every Native nation in the country. The plaintiffs, these white family plaintiffs, and they're not acting alone. They're acting, and they're being sponsored by, again, these right-wing racist legal entities that are trying to knock down everything regarding progress in the United States, whether it's voting rights or in the case of affirmative action, and also here in ICWA. And the plaintiffs are saying that race, using race, and now in this case of adoptions, is racist an unconstitutional, a violation of the 14th Amendment for equal protection under the law. And they're saying, you know, to to consider Native families for Native children is racist. It just boggles the mind what's going on in the United States and the Supreme Court. And again, it looks like it may very well be overturned. Crazy. Um, Now... The argument of the plane of the defendants and those who have filed the amicus briefs on behalf of the Indian Child Welfare Act are, they say, it is racist, but there's a much bigger consideration that takes precedence. And that is that we are sovereign nations. The Native nations are sovereign and and have treaties with the United States. Of course, they've been violated, but that they have a special relationship with the United States government that have negotiated over many, many struggles and that is primary that tribal sovereignty is the law of the land so they're saying you're violating our sovereignty and this is the key what is the U.S. government going to do so the defendants, the native nations are saying this is going to open the door to more attacks on native sovereignty so this is very serious.
0: Definitely. We have a caller on the line here. Mo, tell us what's on your mind.
7: Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I believe in everything. I think your guest is doing a great job in articulating key points regarding affirmative action. So I, I, I want to establish that. I embrace everything that's said. Um, but and this is and it's not, a, Howard, it's not a, a disagreement with what's with, with, with being discussed. I think that uh, there are a couple of things, you know, and, and, and case in point, you drive around, you go in Washington, D.C. And you, uh, last week, you know, Howard University just had their homecoming. And Washington, D.C. and Howard is known as the Mecca. But I can remember, you know, basically 25, 30 years ago, you could drive from anywhere, uh, in Washington, D.C., but particularly in the most heavily populated African-American communities, there are black physicians everywhere. And now in less than 25 or less than 30 years, that's no longer the case. I mean, you can go in historically black colleges and universities and look at their medical schools. Uh, the amount of black physicians has diminished considerably So what's my point? My point is that in a lot of these instances that the African-American community or the, quote-unquote, bourgeoisie African-American community has been quite tepid in addressing affirmative action. And I like to say this, and we know that affirmative action works. And I remember in the first Gulf or the second Gulf War, uh, the right-wing racist United States government— established affirmative action, more and, and most importantly quotas uh, in terms of governing bodies and different infrastructure projects because there had to be a certain amount of Shia, a certain amount of Sunni Muslims that were part of the whole uh, quote-unquote democratic process that was, that was taking place in Iraq. So, you, you know, in, when, when we see these failures, these policy failures, we have to really take in consideration that, 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 that the problems are not only on behalf of the right-wing establishment, but also the bourgeois black bourgeoisie establishment that tends to close the doors behind them. So I'll stop there and uh, wait and uh, give your response off, off the air. But thanks so very much for taking my call. This is a topic that's very dear, near and dear to my heart. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you for calling, Mo. Good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. I mean, you mentioned uh, Howard's homecoming, uh, which was here recently, and I feel like I just have to say, I mean, Howard, <coughs> excuse me, has probably the most popular of HBCU homecomings. But I mean, if you go to any HBCU football game in the Deep South, any of them would be, I think, a better time than Howard Homecoming. <laughs> I, I'm just, gonna, I'm just going to put that out there. But, but Jackie, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on
1: this. <laughs> You know, I I need to know why you feel that. But but that's another conversation for another day, I think. But, you know, this point. That Mo makes about the 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 particularly the black bourgeoisie stepping back from affirmative action, I actually think that's true, and I'm glad he raised that point because there has been a stigma uh, attached to a, affirmative action. Obviously, cooked up by the right wing, um, you know, claiming that affirmative action equals quotas equals filling positions with unqualified black people. Right, that's always the argument. When if you actually read the law, that's not what it says. (laughs) You have to actually fill those positions with with people who are people of color, who are qualified for those positions. And you have to make every effort possible to do so, to find people who are qualified for those positions who are black. But the stigma of affirmative action being equated with oh just filling you know and as far as job let's say in the job market oh just filling a bunch of positions with a bunch of unqualified black people i've i've seen i think the way the black bourgeoisie has has been very tepid in their support and defense of affirmative action even though interestingly enough they became the black bourgeoisie or, or, or the black pettit bourgeoisie grew because of those policies that came out of that legislation. So I do think Mo makes a great point that, you know, the very people who should be standing on the front lines in defense of keeping uh, the government accountable for not continuing to be racist. <laughs> right. Are the ones who are very, very silent. And letting the reactionaries and the racists set the tone, the narrative and lead us to exactly where we are now, Gloria. But I'm wondering what you what you think about uh, uh, most comments.
6: That's a very, very important comment. You know, first of all, when we were in school, all of us kids who were in school, and you know, engaged in defending affirmative action because we were also now under attack. The, the question for those of us who, who are becoming radicalized was. Does does a uh, university and all these reforms uh, create a, a class of uh, youth of color? We call ourselves third world students in those days. It was youth, people of color was not used, but third world students giving us uh, you know having these opportunities, getting degrees, getting good jobs. Does that make us like abandon our community? And I thought that was a very important question. Does this? Does this change things for us? And to me, I felt like what we're talking about is the right of equality, the right of equal access. But equal access means extra programs, special programs to overcome the centuries for black people and the decades for others of consistent systematic denial denying people access and that's what the whole situation is about i want to i want to create i want to bring up one example and it's in terms of employment the fire departments across the united states were historically like 100% white male mostly irish catholic in many places and it was a very important job for someone to hand down to their family so it was always white until a handful, literally a handful, like two in New York City, two in San Francisco that w- suffered such great abuse in the fire department from their their own coworkers, it basically like a clan type atmosphere, until here in San Francisco, they won a court decree, a court decree because of this blatant racist incident that took place. And I was involved in supporting the black firefighters in 1987. And the court said for every white employee hired, there will be a black or Latino or a woman. And it ended up diversifying a fire department greatly. Um, That didn't mean that the problems didn't go away, but why was, why was that so important? It was like, Oh, bring all these people who are unqualified. Oh no, only the white firefighters are good. You know what it was? It was proven that the white firefighters were passing the test on to their sons and nephews, that they were rigging the whole system. And that's true across the United States. So the black firefighters were a key component in winning affirmative action in employment. And it really bears people understanding what that history was about. But it was a consent decree for quotas, right? In San Francisco, in New York City, the same battle taking place, never had a consent decree. And so what happened in 2003, or no, 2011, right? I mean, I'm sorry, 9-11, with 9-11 in 2001, there were 11,000 firefighters in the city of New York. And a tiny number of black firefighters. Um, And the Union of Firefighters in New York was just adamant in keeping out black firefighters. And then so came from that a group called the Vulcan Society that exists in other cities to fight to integrate the fire department, to bring more black firefighters. Why is it important? Why is it a matter of life and death? Because if you're a white firefighter who lives in a suburb, and you get called in or you're in the station overnight when the fire is called, you know, are you going to be as, how can you really understand your community? How can you understand the black community in which there are many fires? In fact, there's a city right now where two black children died in a fire the other day. And it's a big scandal because the firefighters didn't go into the house to look for them, even though neighbors were saying there's children in there. So anyway, I think that um, affirmative action is not by um, giving someone special favors, but reversing the centuries and decades of outright systematic denial.
0: Definitely, definitely. And, you know, just, you know, thinking about, These uh, issues we've been talking about, I mean, whether we're talking about ICWA, whether we're talking about affirmative action, whether we're talking about uh, uh, voting rights, whether we're talking about abortion rights, all of this proves uh, that these these rights, these hard fought, hard won rights, in some cases, issues fought for in blood, uh, can easily be taken away because of the way that this society and this capitalist system is designed. And you note this uh, in your piece, Gloria, about affirmative action, about how almost uh, right after the affirmative action in education piece uh, was passed, we started to see universities rolling it back. So what that means then is that uh, the only way these basic democratic rights and so many others can actually become enshrined as a part of a society and enshrined as a part of a constitution is for there to be a new system and a new society altogether. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luqman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 2 zero two five two one one three two zero I am here Jackie Lumont is here Gloria Lariva is here and Gloria switch and focus some to some uh, international issues um. The United Nations General Assembly's annual vote uh, that is in place to talk about, quote, the economic, commercial and financial embargo imposed by the United States against Cuba will be taking place over the next two days, today and tomorrow. Now, this is something that that happens every year. I believe this is the 30th consecutive time uh, uh, that this vote will be held. Uh, I believe a couple years ago they held off on it because of uh, uh, COVID. And every year, the result is the same. The entire world supports the ending of the criminal unilateral blockade of the United States towards Cuba. And the last time uh, that this vote took place, there were only two countries that opposed it. And that was the United States and Israel to the surprise of absolutely no one. And so it's, I think, a sort of staunch reminder of the role of U.S. imperialism in world politics to where the real international community, more than the overwhelming majority of governments on Earth, every year declared that this uh, blockade should end, and every year that does not happen because of the sheer political, economic, and military might of the imperialist USA. And so as someone who has spent a long time Uh, uh, working around issues of uh, Cuban solidarity. And although that honestly doesn't even really seem uh, like a sufficient phrase to uh, describe uh, the work you've done. Um, And uh, and as someone who who does this work and sort of has seen this go on time and time again, I mean, uh, what is your estimation of this?
6: Yes, the vote is going to happen tomorrow. Today, the debate started. It's a two-day debate of the countries around the world that are gathered at the general assembly, as you said, at the United Nations in New York. And the subject today is Cuba. So we've already heard from the Car- CARICOM, the Caribbean uh, entity of the Caribbean nations, which said the blockade must end. The... Um, the um, Islamic Cooperation Organization spoke out today for Cuba and more countries. It'll be South Africa, Mexico. I mean, there's endless countries that will speak out for Cuba. Um, I, was at the, I was in Venezuela when last year's vote took place. Again, there was a suspension for a year because of the pandemic. But last year, 184 countries voted for Cuba to end the embargo. It's called embargo in the UN. We call it blockade. That's the real term. And last year, Brazil, Colombia, and Ukraine abstained. Now this year, it will be again the U.S. and Israel, as it always is, against Cuba. But now, instead of Colombia abstaining, not taking a position in the last few years, we now have a leftist president, Gustavo Petro. And I'm sure that vote will become, yes, lift the blockade of Cuba. And now in Brazil, even though Brazil uh, was a very big victory for Lula, Uh, He's not inaugurated yet, so with Bolsonaro still president, he probably will abstain or vote against Cuba this time. Who knows? And Ukraine. Ukraine has abstained. Who knows if they'll vote along with the U.S. because of all the billions in military aid they're getting. But more than this, there are countries that are taking bigger stances as well. Because the General Assembly has no power of enforcement. Only the Security Council does and with the U.S. having the veto power in the Security Council of five permanent members. It makes sure that nothing happens against U.S. policy. But around the world, um, the pressure is moving on the United States. And the biggest demand right now, aside from lifting the blockade, the most immediate demand is that many countries are demanding that the U.S., remove Cuba from this spurious list of state sponsors of terrorism. To be called a state sponsor of terrorism by the U.S. means that it forces the world, many, many countries, to do even less business with Cuba. They're hampered. They can't do trade with Cuba because of that label, which is a false label anyway, even against against other countries too, like Syria, Iran, North Korea. But in the matter of Cuba, it's really hurt them in a time where th- the pandemic, the hurricane they just suffered, where you know almost 20,000 homes were completely destroyed in the western part of the country. Cuba has been hurting a lot. And that's why countries are saying, lift that label of state sponsor of terrorism. The 18 former leaders of Latin America and the Caribbean issued a special letter to Biden, Telling him, lift the blockade and remove that state sponsor of terrorism label.
1: Mm. And, you know, Gloria, the fact that we don't know that uh, most other countries in the world actually do vote uh, to uh, lift the blockade against Cuba and votes uh, in opposition of the United States, and the UN just ignores all of those votes and goes on along with what the United States says. I think the fact that uh, the Biden administration insisting that they continue to uphold this blockade and the uh, a designation of Cuba as a a state sponsor of terrorism, um, because the world needs what he what they call a rules based order. I mean, the fact is that the United States is the greatest state sponsor of terrorism in the world. And rules based order doesn't mean, you know, actual rules that the international community follows, the international community that votes consistently for the U.N. to end, uh, force the United States to end the blockade. But the rules based order is actually maintaining U.S. hegemony. And, you know, this really just means that other countries will go along,
6: basically, or else, Gloria. No, you're so right, Jackie. The rules, and most people aren't aware of this in the United States. We're told international law doesn't matter. We don't have to abide by that. We're exceptional. But these rules are like, we say this, if you defy, if you, any country, defy the United States and do what we say, you will be sanctioned. And you will have our rules imposed on you. The whole world, I think, is realizing that more and more, unless people unite together, that they're going to end up being a victim too if they even say anything against the United States. There have been times, for example, in the lead-up to the war in 1991, when certain countries voted um, against the U.N. resolution of sanctions on Iraq, which later led to the massive war, the U.S. came right up to them and said, you know, you're going to pay for that. The U.S. makes countries pay a price for defying U.S. policy. And it is. It's rules versus international law. The, The international law, the Geneva Convention on Genocide, says that when you target a whole people, as they have in the Cuban community, you are committing genocide. And, like, this is interesting, though. In the last few weeks, in the last few weeks, Biden has made some indication. For example, finally after weeks of after the hurricane, the US announced it would send 2 million dollars of aid to hospitals because of the hurricane. Now, as has been pointed out, every day of the blockade costs Cuba 15 million dollars in losses, 13 to 15 million dollars. So the 2 million dollars is a drop, a real drop in the bucket. However, it may be an indication that some things may be lifted. There's some rumors that maybe the state sponsored terrorism label might be lifted after the election. But this is a far cry from what is needed. Now, that would be big. It's, it's very necessary. Cuba's calling for that. But this is counter to what Biden promised in his election campaign. Sheer cynicism. To use polls to understand the sentiments of people and to make promises knowing that they wouldn't be carried out. When he said he would return to Obama's policies, and instead he's kept the 243 economic and political measures against Cuba that were imposed by Trump. Now, there's another one that is taking place that people are finding now at the end as the uh, pandemic, go- pandemic goes on in its third year. That the U.S. now is saying anybody who traveled to Cuba from any country that they live in, if you want to come to the U.S., you have to get special permission to get a visa. That a visa that used to be automatic will not be so easy for you. It's incredible.
0: Yeah, it, it really is. It really is. I mean, just the... uh The depth of uh, uh, cruelty that that is clearly uh, the in the intention here, along with sort of the uh, broader issues of regime change that Washington has been trying to carry out against Cuba ever since the triumph of its uh, uh, revolution is just always shown so starkly and it has not relented. Under uh, the pandemic, it, it did not relent uh, when they had that uh, uh, big energy fire in Cuba some weeks back. It did not relent uh, in the aftermath of uh, uh, the latest hurricane, although because of, uh, you know, their own planning and their socialist structure, as usual, Cuba was able to avoid uh, a massive human loss as a result of that hurricane. And, uh, you know, Gloria, just taking a look also at some uh Uh, uh, developments happening elsewhere in Latin America. Uh, We've also seen reports that uh, Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro and uh, Gustavo Petro of Colombia have held uh, been holding meetings in Caracas about uh, uh, continuing to strengthen diplomatic ties between the countries that have been uh, uh, strained uh, for some time. Of course, uh, Colombia and uh, Venezuela border each other. And I actually believe it was a uh, Hugo Chavez that called Colombia the Israel of Latin America. And so that's uh, caused a difficult dynamic there with the government in Caracas. And so just wondering how you see uh, these meetings and how they're important for the region.
6: Yes, I think it's so important when it's taken place with this last election in Brazil and the one in Colombia, too, that these are these giant countries that border Venezuela and which have been used for a number of years now by the United States against Venezuela. Through uh, paramilitary operations, through hostility, through different aggressions, including that that took place in 2019 between Colombia and Venezuela. But in addition, Colombia plays a special role for the U.S. internationally. NATO, which is now you know expanding and threatening Russia's existence and promising to defeat Russia in Ukraine, along with the U.S., Colombia, this Latin American country, is an observer member of NATO. So what are the Colombian uh what did the Colombian government do up until now? It was providing mercenaries in a number of international uh actions by NATO and the United States, including in Ukraine right now. And it's a danger it's a danger to Venezuela. So with Gustavo Petro being the president now and President Maduro of Venezuela meeting with him, it's a big change. It's a big change because it will be able to resolve many of the problems on the border between the two countries. For a number of years now, uh, there has been um, a complete market that has developed there of corruption, of contraband, of massive theft, theft of goods that are subsidized for the Venezuelan people that go over to Colombia because of the failure of the Colombian government to pr- both provide for its own people and to stop that trafficking. Um, and it's also always been a danger of possible invasion. With Brazil, um, the bettering of relations will be very important. Now, Lula is could end up being somewhat hampered because the Congress of Brazil is dominated by the right wing he won by very, very slim margin. Almost half the population, more than 49%, or maybe 49%, voted for Bolsonaro. And so there's a lot to um, struggle over there. That he may not be as free as he was before because of the opposition, but nonetheless, it's still a very big victory. It portends the possibility of peace. Now, the interesting thing about the label of state terrorism of Cuba by the U.S., this false label, is that the U.S. says now that it's because Cuba was, quote, harboring terrorists from Colombia. But in fact, what Cuba was doing was hosting the peace talks and negotiations, first between the FARC and the Colombian government, and then the ELN, two guerrilla groups, the ELN and the Colombian government, and it was sponsored also by Norway. It was given the green light by international and Latin American entities that said, "Good, yes, Cuba is a uh, is uh, hosting these negotiations." And for that, the U.S. said Cuba is a state sponsor of terrorism. So hopefully, with this new government uh, in Brazil and the current left government of Colombia, there will be a big improvement in cooperation and help toward Cuba and Venezuela.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think uh, a very promising time uh, uh, for the region. And, you know, uh, thinking about both the elections in Brazil and even Colombia, which we also followed and reported on here on the show, I just think about, uh, again, just the the direct and crucial role of social movements in these things taking place. Because, you know, th- th- this development with this uh, what feels like a, a solid block of uh, progressive governments in uh, uh, Latin America, it didn't come about all by itself. It didn't come about as the result of the efforts of Individuals, And I want to really highlight that, uh, particularly for our audience here in the United States, uh, where, you know, capitalist culture has inculcated a deeply individualistic sort of orientation towards politics and uh, uh, many other things. It's not, you know, great men or great people or just these superlative individuals that uh, that uh, make these kinds of change. We know that individuals are not the motive force of history. The people are right, and so through these collective efforts, we've been able to see these uh, uh, shifts happen throughout the region over a period of time. And so, I really think we should uh, be keeping an eye to that, particularly as we enter the midterms in a couple of years. We'll uh, uh, be facing yet another uh, presidential election here in the United States, and I just feel like in this country we're uh, uh, we're we're made to believe that like if we just vote for the right person or something like that or, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, vote against someone either like, like that in and of itself is going to fundamentally solve our issues but in truth particularly when we talk about elections in the US where the duopoly is uh, controlled by the capitalist class that simply is not the case i mean you're basically just you know it's uh, shifting around uh, uh, the, the garbage in a sense like you know in a way it, it's just a matter of you know which segment of the ruling class is going to impress op- oppress and exploit us for however many years depending on which election we're talking about and so we're taught that this is the normal way of things and that this is how things should be. But in truth, it has not always been this way. It does not have to be this way, and it won't be if we organize. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Gloria Lariva, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all new episode. So, as always, we'll see you next time. Peace.
2: By Any Means Necessary.